I want you to hit me as hard as you can. When Star Wars became an unprecedented box office phenomenon in 1977, other studios immediately scrambled to make their own sci-fi saga in the hopes of grabbing those same cosmic profits, resulting in a flurry of movies with sleek spaceships and scorching laser blasts. Soon after Luke Skywalker and his colleagues obliterated the Death Star, the ragtag fugitive fleet of Battlestar Galactica drifted onto TV screens and into theaters in Sensoround, before the ratings couldn't justify the exorbitant cost of the series. Disney journeyed into deep space with The Black Hole, a borderline horror movie that still managed to squeeze in laser gun battles and marketable robots. A decade after their TV show was canceled, the crew of the USS Enterprise were reunited on the big screen for Star Trek The Motion Picture. Schlock producer Roger Corman got in on the action with the low-budget Battle Beyond the Stars, a sci-fi remake of Kurosawa's Seven Samurai that featured early effects work from a young James Cameron. Pulp hero Buck Rogers flew onto the big screen, followed by a TV series perhaps best remembered for its tight shiny uniforms and the Mel Blanc voiced robot Tweaky. There were Star Wars ripoffs from Japan and Italy. Even master spy James Bond took a trip into space to dodge some flashing blue lines in Moonraker. And then in 1980 came... Bosh! Oh! Flash Gordon was already a household name by then. The iconic character had been around for decades and was George Lucas's primary inspiration for Star Wars. Flash Gordon, a handsome hero fighting galactic evil with swords and ray guns. Who wouldn't want to see that? Let's find out what the f happened to this movie. Flash Gordon first appeared on the printed page in the Sunday comics back in 1934 conscripted by the syndication company King Features and created and illustrated by Alex Raymond, the character was conceived as a direct competitor to another popular sci-fi comic strip hero, Buck Rogers. A Yale graduate and renowned polo player, Flash Gordon rockets into space with girlfriend Dale Arden and scientist Hans Zarkov to face the looming threat of a planet called Mongo. The intrepid trio lands on the distant world where they encounter strange allies and alien threats as they battle the dastardly emperor Ming the Merciless. The character's newspaper popularity quickly launched him onto radio and into the pages of novels. His star-spanning exploits came to life in film serials in the late 1930s, starring Buster Crabbe as the athletic adventurer, and then on a TV series in 1954 with Steve Holland as the hero. Although Flash Gordon would inspire countless other famous characters and stories, aside from his own regular comic strip appearances, he slowly disappeared from the public eye. An imaginative young filmmaker named George Lucas wanted to change that. In the early 1970s, Lucas approached King Features to inquire about adapting the Flash Gordon comics, but the company already had plans for the character with producer Dino De Laurentiis and Italian filmmaker Federico Fellini, who had made such acclaimed movies as La Dolce Vita and Eight and a Half. Disappointed but undeterred, Lucas simply decided to craft a space opera of his very own with Star Wars. While he was also influenced by westerns and samurai films, Lucas's story of rebellious heroes facing an oppressive empire liberally dipped into the world of Flash Gordon from the opening crawl of the serials to royal hair buns from the comic strip. As an endless stream of moviegoers lined up around the block to witness a farm boy from Tatooine saving the galaxy, the success of Lucas's Flash Gordon variant prompted momentum on an actual Flash Gordon movie. Federico Fellini had already moved on, but Dino De Laurentiis still held the rights to the character and hired Nicholas Rogue to direct a Flash Gordon feature film. Rogue had previously directed the Julie Christie Donald Sutherland thriller Don't Look Now, 
and also had some sci-fi experience from the existential David Bowie Starman drama The Man Who Fell to Earth. Together with Enter the Dragon writer Michael Allen, Rogue spent nearly a year on the script for Flash Gordon while a team of artists worked on production designs. But as it would turn out, Rogue had strayed too far from the source material for De Laurentiis. Rogue's unorthodox interpretation was more intellectual and decidedly adult, with Ming claiming planets by wiping out everyone except for selected females, with whom he would then breed and repopulate the galaxy. Flash was conceived as a kind of metaphysical messiah. Rogue's whole concept had grandiose designs, but was completely lacking the expected comic strip aesthetics and energetic action that would make it an obvious pop culture sensation. De Laurentiis rejected Rogue's approach. He had been producing films for a long time in both Hollywood and Italy, including adaptations of comic material with Barbarella and Danger Diabolic, and he had a clear vision of what he wanted to see from Flash Gordon. At that point, Rogue decided he wouldn't stick around to be convinced of adhering to the producer's perspective. By now, it was early 1979, and Dino De Laurentiis still needed a director for a movie planned to go before cameras that summer. He then enlisted Mike Hodges, who he had already spoken with about directing an intended Flash Gordon sequel, and instead brought him in to helm the one that was currently in pre-production. Like Rogue, Hodges was an unusual choice. Best known for the Michael Caine crime thriller Get Carter, his only science fiction background was an adaptation of Michael Crichton's novel The Terminal Man, with George Siegel as a scientist who becomes violent after implanting computer technology in his brain. Hodges had departed the horror sequel Damien Omen 2 after a few weeks of filming due to irreconcilable differences with the producers, and he was still rebounding. He agreed to take the reins of Flash Gordon, not knowing quite what he would be in for. Gil Taylor, who conveniently was also George Lucas's cinematographer on Star Wars, would serve as director of photography when Flash Gordon shot on a variety of London sound stages. For a new draft of the script, De Laurentiis called on writer Lorenzo Semple Jr., who had already worked for him on Three Days of the Condor and his 1976 remake of King Kong. Semple was also experienced in adapting comics, having developed and written for the 1960s Adam West Batman TV series, and he wanted to apply a similar sensibility to Flash Gordon. The movie was never intended to be anything but fun. Now De Laurentiis just needed a leading man to save every one of us. Initially, he approached Kurt Russell, who found the character too shallow. Russell would soon establish himself in more grounded sci-fi with The Thing and Escape from New York. Arnold Schwarzenegger also pursued the role, but was kept from contention due to his thick accent. Just a couple of years later, De Laurentiis gave the Austrian strongman his breakthrough role with Conan the Barbarian. Sam Jones had an unconventional path to his audition. Apparently, Dino's mother-in-law had seen Jones as a contestant on the dating game and suggested him for the part of Flash Gordon. Jones was a former Marine who had wanted to become a pro football player but instead ended up doing some modeling and TV commercials before landing a small role in the Blake Edwards romantic comedy 10. After an initial interview with De Laurentiis in Hollywood, Jones was flown to London for hair dye, costume fittings, workouts, and rehearsals to play Flash, now modernized from polo player to star quarterback for the New York Jets, complete with his own branded t-shirt. For Flash's love interest, Dale Arden, De Laurentiis had auditioned dozens of actresses before selecting Dale Haddon, a former model who had just starred with Nick Nolte in North Dallas 40. But mere days before filming started, De Laurentiis had a change of heart and instead contacted Melody Anderson, who had also auditioned but had since moved on. Anderson was reluctant but gave in to the producer's persistence, and over the course of a weekend, she found herself in London, zooming through screen tests, hair color, and wardrobe to make her future debut on the expensive production. To play Dr. Hans Zarkoff, De Laurentiis couldn't choose between Fiddler on the Roof star Topple and screen tough guy Warren Oates of movies like The Wild Bunch and Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. According to Flash Gordon's assistant director Brian Cook, Dino flipped a coin to make the decision, and Topple came up heads. 
For Mongo's megalomaniac Ming the Merciless, De Laurentiis went to veteran actor Max von Sydow, who had appeared in the producer's thriller Three Days of the Condor and his drama Hurricane. Like De Laurentiis, von Sydow had been a fan of the Flash Gordon comic as a young man, and he clearly savored the opportunity to play the space tyrant. Director Mike Hodges later said he had never seen an actor have such a good time playing a role. The cast was rounded out with talented players. British TV regular Peter Wingard, who helped inspire the Mike Myers character Austin Powers, would wear the metal mask of Clytus, Ming's insidious chief of security. Italian actress Ornella Moody was chosen to play Ming's daughter, the devious and perpetually horny Princess Aura. Actor Brian Blessed had coveted and ultimately landed the part of Prince Voltan, the boisterous ruler of the winged Hawkmen. Respected theater actor Timothy Dalton, pre-007, would play Prince Baron, the noble leader of the forest-dwelling Arborean people. Richard O'Brien, the Rocky Horror Picture Show's writer and riffraff, scored the role of Baron's right-hand man, Fico. For the appearance of the film, the person who would have the most control was costume and production designer Danilo Donati, who conceived the movie's ornate Art Deco architecture, dense colors, and elaborate outfits. De Laurentiis revered Donati from his work on Fellini's filmography and effectively gave him carte blanche to dictate Flash Gordon's overall aesthetic with a direct line to the construction and wardrobe departments. This presented challenges to the rest of the production. For one, Donati didn't speak English, and for another, both Hodges and Semple later said that he refused to read the script. Donati would either base his designs on the original comic strips or from whatever his imagination would randomly conjure. For example, Donati's original mystifying design for Arborea had a three-lane freeway running through the forest, and De Laurentiis had actually talked with automotive company Fiat about building space cars for it. Hodges managed to shut down that idea before it could be realized, but at another point, the Arborea set was populated with pink trees before cinematographer Gil Taylor insisted they change it to a more standard color for wood. The finished forest set was so dense with trees that the director had difficulty figuring out where to place the cameras. Hodges later stated that Donati seemed to design sets mainly for his own personal enjoyment, and apparently got his way most of the time thanks to his platinum status in the eyes of De Laurentiis. While Donati's costumes were extravagant, not all of them were especially functional. Peter Wingard discovered he needed to employ ventriloquism techniques for projecting his voice in order to be comprehensible through his mask, and the Clytus costume was so heavy that he needed to be physically propped up for many scenes. Anderson said that the black gown she wore for the wedding ceremony weighed more than 50 pounds, and the wings of the Hawkmen were so rigid that during downtime, the actors had to lie on their stomachs because they couldn't sit. A perch was built for actor Brian Blessed to rest on, prompting bird jokes from the crew. Stop, and we'll go, pretty poly, pretty poly, pretty, bugger off! For such a costly production, perhaps the biggest surprise is how much was improvised. This place is a lunatic asylum. Hodges never really knew what sets or costumes would be fabricated and presented, largely because of Donati's creative authority and a lack of communication between a crew that was half English and half Italian. While the framework and dialogue of Semple's script was used, the director and cast essentially figured out what they were going to shoot each day. Over a two-year period on Flash Gordon, production illustrator Mentor Hubner estimated that he had drawn over 2,000 storyboards while the script constantly changed. But Hodges later admitted that he couldn't really use storyboards for reference, because almost any level of planning was virtually impossible under the circumstances. The memorable football scuffle in Ming's Grand Hall was a prime example. The scene was originally scripted as a basic brawl between Flash and Ming's guards, but the shape of the space eggs, meant as tribute to Ming, gave Sam Jones a lightbulb moment, and a whole new stunt sequence was arranged to take advantage of Flash's sports proficiency. Anderson, seeing her character as the prototypical all-American girl, joined in on the sidelines as Flash's cheerleader. In retrospect, it all makes perfect sense for a character who's a pro quarterback. 
Jones also later came up with the final celebratory freeze frame moment after Earth is miraculously saved. The language barriers and general disorganization also led to another scene in which Ming hypnotizes Flash into believing Dale is a man-eating spider creature. Anderson endured hours of makeup to paint her body green and was given oversized fangs and a heavy headpiece to make her appear monstrous. However, when Hodges arrived on set, he was baffled by what had been done because it wasn't anything that had been scripted or even discussed. Needless to say, the whole sequence was scrapped. The inflating cost had also necessitated cutting other planned elements like the Lion Men and the Ice Kingdom of Phrygia from the original comic strips. Flash's duel with Prince Baron in the Hawkmen Sky Palace also presented its own logistical challenges. The hydraulic tilting disc was precariously elevated 30 feet in the air. Sam Jones and Timothy Dalton both trained for several weeks to safely but believably wield the bullwhips. The floor spikes were raised and lowered by moving air through pneumatic tubes, which only somewhat reduced the risk to the actors if they accidentally fell on them. The silver paint on the disc also kept wearing off on their skin, requiring additional time to remove it between takes. Some of the footage also needed to be reshot because the makeup department was applying more blood than would be acceptable for a PG rating. Jones said that the sequence took a couple of weeks to shoot and ended up only being around three minutes of screen time. Upon arrival to the set to film his death scene, Peter Wingard tried to take advantage of the spontaneous filmmaking conditions by suggesting that Clytus live, but Hodges insisted on his impalement. However, Wingard later claimed that was the hand of Clytus collecting Ming's ring at the end, and said that De Laurentiis had plans for Clytus in the sequel that never happened, so the character did somehow survive his gruesome demise. While it would now be easily accomplished through CGI, getting the Hawkmen airborne on screen was a complicated process 40 years ago. The actors and stuntmen were held aloft in harnesses, while dozens of wire workers moved the performers and their wings up and down, with massive fans blowing to simulate wind, all during winter months in a giant soundstage with no heat. Glenn Robinson, who had worked on the flying monkeys in The Wizard of Oz, was actually brought in as a consultant on the wings. The spectacular climax, with squadrons of Hawkmen hovering and diving, was achieved through a complex combination of actors, miniatures, hand animation, and numerous layers of optical printing. The movie's sets and sequences were shot against giant blue screens, but during filming, Hodges had no idea what he was eventually going to fill that space with. He knew that he wanted to retain the overall style and rich colors of the Flash Gordon comic strips. The alien environment ultimately seen in the background is the constantly shifting clouds and vibrant skies above Mongo. In post-production, this effect was achieved by injecting inks of various color and weight into a giant tank and recording the motion in high speed as the liquids bled and swirled. In December of 1979, the production broke for the Christmas holiday, but there was yet another predicament. Sam Jones had been engaging in some undesirable behavior, such as making demands on set and getting in fights during off hours. Being reprimanded by De Laurentiis didn't seem to fix the problems. Hodges wrote it off as a blend of naivety and confidence, which he found served the character. But other cast members later described the actor's behavior with terms like emotionally young and prima donna. I wasn't getting paid as a weekly actor. I listened to my representation, who evidently wanted a piece of Dino. They said, no, we're going to just hold up and you're not going to work anymore. Either way, De Laurentiis made the decision to complete the movie without his leading man, and Jones did not return after the holiday. Principal photography had wrapped before the break, but Hodges had to finish nearly three months of second unit work, using stand-ins and stunt doubles for the hero. And because Jones was no longer involved for post-production, much of his dialogue needed to be dubbed by another actor. While it's never been confirmed, allegedly the dialogue was performed by longtime British actor Peter Marinker, who has since provided his voice to movies like Labyrinth and video games like Dark Souls and The Witcher.
One of the most essential components of the movie was the driving score and unforgettable title song by rock legends Queen. A rock underscore for a major movie had never been done before by a prominent band, but interestingly enough, Hodges was actually hoping to get Pink Floyd to perform the soundtrack and even play their music on set while filming. De Laurentiis was somehow unfamiliar with Queen, even though they were at the height of their popularity, but he was convinced to commission them for the score, giving them and composer Howard Blake creative license as long as the result served the movie. Queen is now inextricably associated with the character and film. It's almost inconceivable to see or hear the name Flash Gordon and not think of... Flash! Flash Gordon arrived in theaters on December 5, 1980. Ticket sales were decent in the UK and Italy, but the movie just didn't connect with audiences in North America, and it finished with only 27 million. The peculiar tone, quaint rockets, and intense colors apparently were too inaccessibly retro for the moviegoers who had recently flocked to see the monochromatic empire and scrappy rebels of the Star Wars movies. An accurate final budget of the film seems difficult to pin down, alternately quoted as anywhere from 25 million to 40 million a larger figure than that summer's The Empire Strikes Back. Whatever the actual cost, Flash Gordon was not going to become the next Star Wars. Dino De Laurentiis had wanted to make a serious outer space epic. He even tried again a few years later with the more expensive David Lynch adaptation of Dune, which also disappointed at the box office. But Flash Gordon can only be described as camp. No! Not a ballworm! Even though the actors were directed to play it straight, the tongue-in-cheek spirit manifested naturally. It's difficult to take a movie too seriously when it begins with the villain's sinister attack on Earth delivered by a device that could have been from Wile E. Coyote's Acme catalog. Hodges once compared the movie to a souffle. The result is delicious, but it takes a light touch to make. Thanks to the growth of home video and endless airings on TV and cable, over the years, Flash Gordon became a cult classic to viewers who enjoy the magnificent sets and practical effects, adore the infectious energy and earnest absurdity, flying blind on a rocket cycle, and appreciate the sly undercurrent of sexual innuendo that permeates the film. The movie counts filmmakers like Edgar Wright and Robert Rodriguez among its admirers, while comic artist Alex Ross is a self-proclaimed superfan who has painted numerous Flash Gordon illustrations. But the role never rocketed star Sam Jones to A-list status. In fact, he was nominated for a Razzie Award for Flash Gordon. He did find steady work in low-budget features and TV roles, including a rejected pilot for Will Eisner's comic hero The Spirit. But the major Hollywood opportunities weren't coming his way, undoubtedly the fallout from playing hardball and engaging in litigation with a powerful producer. He ultimately reconciled with De Laurentiis years later, but the damage to his career was done. Eventually the offers disappeared, so with five kids to feed, he put his former military training to use and began working for a private security firm in San Diego, also making time to attend conventions and meet the fans of the virtuous hero he brought to life. Like a number of filmmakers from his generation, Seth MacFarlane was a major fan of Flash Gordon in his youth. While making his live-action directing debut with the R-rated comedy Ted, he contacted Jones about playing an exaggerated version of himself to party with Mark Wahlberg's Flash fanatic. The movie was a smash success, thrusting both Sam Jones and Flash Gordon back into the spotlight. Gordon's alive! But beyond that, Flash Gordon still hasn't found the attention that the classic character deserves. Filmation's satisfying cartoon series hit the airwaves before the movie in 1979, but the 1996 animated series, which turned Ming into a reptile, left plenty to be desired, as did the Sci-Fi Channel's cheap live-action series in 2007 and the newspaper comic that first launched the character ended publication in 2003. 
Over the years, plans for another live-action adaptation have crossed the desk of directors Ridley Scott, Stephen Summers, Breck Eisner, Matthew Vaughn, and most recently, Overlord director Julius Avery, while Taika Waititi is attached to an animated Flash Gordon movie. The treasured 1980 Flash Gordon feature is getting a glorious 4K upgrade for its 40th anniversary. It remains to be seen if the interstellar hero will ever have another adventure on the big screen. But until then, we'll always have... Flash! Ah! Who's it?